Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with actress and director Courtney Cox. When I first met Courtney, I was a young photographer assigned to shoot the cast of an unknown show called Friends. By the time I directed an episode of her show Cougar Town about 18 years later, she'd had one of the longest and most successful television careers ever. Sure, Luck and Bruce Springsteen played a role in it, and there's no denying that Friends captured lightning in a bottle in a way no show has ever done since. But all along, Courtney has pushed and challenged herself as an artist, using every experience to develop her craft as an actor, and more recently as a director. Her film, Just Before I Go, reveals an unexpectedly dark sense of humor, and also what it's like to find your voice in the public eye. I sit down with Courtney to talk about her meteoric career, what she learned about movie music from Gus Van Zandt, and why a break after nearly two decades of work is more likely to result in panic than a trip to the Caribbean. What surprised me most was how close it all came to never happening. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Ah, thanks for having me. You know, we have a bit of a history together. And, and I was thinking about that when I was getting ready for this, is that your meteoric career rise sort of led mine in a way because I was a struggling starting out photographer when Friends started. Mm. And one of my earliest jobs for a magazine was I shot the entire cast of Friends. I think like around episode two or three, I went to the set and I think it was for Entertainment Weekly, and I put you all in like under a blanket, in a bed. You shot that? I shot that. I remember that. Yeah, and, and then when you were, I think it was for the cover of the 50 Most Beautiful People, photographed you for that, for the cover of People magazine, mm -hmm. and that was probably right in the middle of the height of it, like maybe 97, 96. That was a long time 96. ago. Yeah. yeah, and then of course, we worked together on Cougar Town, mm -hmm. You directed? I directed an episode. And I wanted to start there because, you know, I had come in. I had never done a half-hour comedy before. I didn't know if anyone in the room knew that. So I felt sort of like that feeling of, oh, they're going to find out I shouldn't really be here. And they're, you, yeah. know, you have that feeling. And then you obviously have done more television than anybody. You've done 400 episodes of television. I've not done one. And so I was really nervous the first day. Of course, who wouldn't be? You know, I know the first time I directed an episode of Cougar Town, I was really nervous. And I know all those people, and they knew it was my first episode. But of course, you're walking into a new set, new people. Right. I think it brings up an interesting point about directing um, television, especially because as a cast and as a crew, a lot of people don't know that the only new person on a set each week is the director. Yeah. I think that coming into an existing show, out of the just out of nowhere, it's got to be really hard. I'm, like I said, it was hard for me to direct Cougar Town the first time, just you know, being a cast member. Yeah. But I don't know. That's one of the things I've directed a few things, and um, I did a lot of Cougar Towns, and I did. Uh, I've done a few music videos, but it's so different because it's, you're in charge. When you come into someone else's show, you have to. You're, you're essentially working off of their format. Yeah. And so you can try to make it your own, which we do. We try to make it more interesting than the typical two-shot, single-single. But you still are, you're still under, like, you know, at Cougar Town, we used to start with these little zip-ins or, right. you know, it's, you're having to fit into someone else's mold. Yeah, and it's like the first day of high school, too, where everyone knows each other and you've shown up and you're the new kid. Yeah. Yeah. If it's, if it's taking you a while, people are like, Psst, I can't really 
<laughs> you know, like, right. It's not easy. I think that's a hard thing to do to, to be an episodic director. What's that like on the actor side in terms of having to adjust your way of working to, to each new director? You know, if you've been on the show for a long time, you're used to a certain kind of thing where it's you're out a certain time, at a certain time. You know how long it's going to take. I actually love when we get new directors because you, you you find stuff in your character you kind of either forgot about or or you get lazy. And it's right. nice when someone new comes in and re, kind of reinvigorates um, the just what you're doing. Like gives you a new a new take on a joke or tries it. Even if it doesn't work, it's something to think about. It's some new way to, to do a take. I actually, my best work, I think, is when I'm directing because I know the script so well that I can be freer. It's, right. you know, you, you do, it's easy to get lazy when you're on the same show for so long and you get the script and you want to memorize it and you try. And I'm, as I get older, my memory is getting terrible. <laughs> but so I, I it's, it's um, I think that, it's just nice to be that free, and then you can play around. Did you want to direct a long time before you actually did it? Well, I, I actually didn't want to. I didn't know that I wanted to direct until later. Like on Friends, David Schwimmer directed a lot of episodes, and he was fantastic. He's so great working with the actors. He's got a theater company, and he just he was really good. I never wanted to do that because that's, you know, four or five cameras. It just, I don't know. I, I don't I right. didn't have any desire, but I'm so visual and I care so much about design and the way things look. And I know that I suffer from acute awareness, I always say, because I can notice every single thing, everything. I can't help it. My brain just. So this is a good room much. for you. Uh, well, this There's is like, nothing to uh, look at. <laughs> I, well, it's just so clean. I don't have to think about yeah, it. Isn't that nice? Um, but anyway, so I, I, I I, I did my, the first thing I did was this this short for Glamour Real Moments. Okay. And it was something I wrote with my friend Taya. And Laura Dern starred in it. Uh-huh. And it was the story about my, actually someone I know, my my best friend, her mother had died. And it was a story about, it's called The Monday Before Thanksgiving. Okay. And it was just a true story. But it was a short thing. And that was the first thing I'd ever done. And having Laura and Rosemary Harris also was um, was in it. So... It was fantastic having this amazing actress, Laura Dern, yeah. be in it. That's a good way but to start. It was perfect. And I just, I think I, oh, it was, it was um, featuring only women directors. So I had this opportunity kind of fall on my lap, and I thought I'd like to take it. And I loved it. I had such a good time directing that short that when I was doing Cougar Town, it just felt like the natural progression. I've been doing it for so long. I think I came, I think my first episode I directed was in season four. Okay. But, you know, you're also protected because you have the DP who's been on the show for a long time and he's there to help you when you forgot something. And you know the crew, you know everyone so well that they're there to support you. So it was a great place for me to to start doing it. I think I did like 10 episodes or something. Did you really? Mm-hmm. I think the one I directed, you were doing the very next one. So you were in the middle of prepping for that acting on the show and I think you were editing your film at the yeah. same time I do like to do I, it, I'm so much I'm just better when I'm busy yeah if I sit around I, for some reason I don't I can't motivate I find myself on a hamster wheel but I'm really busy that's probably ADD that's probably just what it is without medication um, <laughs> but when I'm busy I just get so much more done I'm so much more um, interested and involved and yeah. excited about everything so yeah it probably was I probably was editing posting prepping isn't that acting. crazy well, okay, so tell me, um, you know, you're on set for years and years and years on, on shows. All you ever hear about in the prep for an episode is you got to make your day. Mm-hmm. you got to make your day. And if you don't make your day, everyone's a little bit grumpy and they have to go late. And, and so I was constantly trying to stay ahead 
and drawing where the camera should be in the net. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Did you find that that was sort of um, an education in, in how to sort of be able to be one step ahead of the rest of the crew and knowing where you wanted to go? Yeah, I think preparation, especially when you're coming into a new show, it's so important. I, I, I was so prepared my first episode, my, probably my first four episodes. I drew out every single thing, and I you tried did. to go. I wanted to make my mark. I wanted to, to stand out. And it was, a, it was a pretty big episode. It was an episode about, it's kind of like a takeoff on Braveheart. And um, there's a big battle scene between these little kids and us. In, in the end of the cul-de-sac. And um, I just had drawn out every single shot. And it just helps so much when you're really, really prepared. But um, I, I loved it. That, that's when I was like, okay, the directing is fantastic. Really? But I remember saying to the cast the first day, I said, please, I really need you to work with me because I know that you guys want to get out at a certain time. I know, we, you know we're, we're comfortable in our jobs, but this means the world to me. So when they say, um, come on, cast on set, do you mind just kind of hurrying to the set because I've just a lot to do in a real short time and they were pretty great I mean everyone was really helped me out and you know it's so easy to go like can you come to the set sure I'll be there in a little bit and then you don't really come right away (laughs) it's really painful because you just think oh no if I don't make my day and it's because oh god it's it's yeah it was hard um but you see busy phillips is one of the most prepared people I've ever met I mean, she just, she had speeches that were, didn't make any sense at all. They just, she rambles. That's her character. Yeah. And yet she knew every line. She was unbelievable. Um, Krista, too, she's, she really prepares. Some of the boys, you know, I might be included in one of the boys, not so prepared. <laughs> when, when I'm directing, I am. But, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, was, it was really fun. Josh Hopkins used to always say to me, if I'd come up to him to give him a note, he'd be like, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. I was like, got it, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> he would never, it was like the big joke in the set, he wouldn't let me, let me give him notes, but he would, really. Well, did you find it hard to direct yourself and be in the scene and then also have to kind of watch the other performance? No, because what, I would get playback, so i just go and see. Well, I'd do a few takes, and then if I felt like, I just can tell when I've, I'm, I'm connected. Yeah. And if I forget that I'm actually directing and I'm listening, then I know that it's going to be okay. Right. I noticed something when I directed you, which was that, um, you had the ability, even if you weren't totally off script when you came in that morning, you had the ability to find the line very quickly. Do you think that from doing this for years and years, and especially doing all the live audience stuff, that you, um, you develop this weird memorizing brain that you can, you can take it in and hold it for a little while and then forget it? You know, you can sit in your room, and everyone has their own way to do this, but you can sit or you can listen playback or you can do something but to me i cannot it cannot absorb information unless it makes sense to me so i can read it but it, i have to be saying it to the person right so it does take me rehearsal time to actually hear it use my props and just feel free but if i'm just at home memorizing it it, it doesn't work for some reason all of a sudden you'll say it different than the way i'm saying your line in my head right and i i have to relate to somebody or actually being able to hear them. Otherwise, I'm just reading something. And I, like when I read anything, I almost need to hear it, see it. I, I'm, I to absorb information. I think it helps me to right. to understand. I have to. I, I mean, I like in history when I was a kid, I didn't get it. Like none of it made sense to me. Just reading it and someone pointing at something and telling. I have to like. I need visuals. You have to go see Hamilton. How? I see it. I'm obsessed yeah. with it. Have you seen it? Seen it. I've been twice. I can't believe really? I'm not there right now. You know, my kids are so into Hamilton. And 
And I think, like, if I, had, if I had Hamilton when I was their age, I might have stayed awake in history. I would have known every <laughs> single thing. Right. That is one of the greatest experiences of my life. It, you know, it really is. The second time you go, the, I don't know if you've seen it twice, but the first time you just, like, you can't believe it. And the second time, just he walks out and you start crying. Isn't it amazing? Because you know what's going to happen. So just, it's all tears. I cried the entire time the second time I saw it. Really? But out of, like, happiness and of just, it just... They're so talented. You know, but it's interesting what you say that you start by saying you have such acute spatial awareness and, and you're visual. And then you say that to memorize lines, you have to do it in a visual space, in a visual mm-hmm. sense. And it makes total sense. Yeah. So before we go on, I just want to ask you one more question about, about the first time you directed Cougar Town. Was there an extra layer of, I've got to be really, really good because or else they're going to think it's some vanity project that I want to direct an episode. Did you ever worry about that? I, I, I definitely had to prove something. You did? The network probably was like, yeah, give her an episode. Right. I'm sure they just kind of threw me the bone. And, um, but I think they saw the dailies that I was involved and really cared, and I think word got back. But you do take it personally. When you get your first set of notes, I'm like, really? I don't want to cut that. That's pretty funny. Or, you know, you get, I, I, I would... I would take things personally. Would you? Yeah, I do. Like, to me, directing is so, it's your baby. Not so much Cougar Town, just because that was a, a show that. Sure. But, yeah, I've, it's, it's really hard, because it's, it's, it's your vision. It's your, you know. Yeah, and I would assume that you have a much more complex and, and better platform to use your voice as an artist, as a director, than you do as an actor. I mean, mm. I would think that once you do that, unless it was a terrible experience, you'd want to do it again and again. Oh, yeah. I love it. Well, I watched your film twice. Uh, I watched just before I go. And the second time, I, I listened to the commentary track. Oh, God. And <laughs> I love commentary tracks. And what I loved about your commentary was how honest you were about the fact that you were making a really you know, ambitious film for the money and that you were the financer. I know. The financier. Yeah. How do you say that? Financer? Financier? Fin- I don't know. You paid for it. I paid for it. Okay, so let's talk about that because I think the fascinating thing listening to the commentary is I was hearing from the director and the financier throughout the film and that's not often the case and and you know sometimes it would almost be like in the commentary there would be sort of an argument between the financier and the and the director like you talk about a scene in the kitchen where there was supposed to be this big fight with flour and it's almost like the director and you saw this amazing scene where all this flour in the kitchen makes this fight crazy and the financier is like there's we don't, no we don't have way time to we can flour <laughs> yeah so uh, let's go back a little bit and just tell me Tell me about the decisions leading up to you saying, I'm just going to pay for this myself. Okay, so this script had come to me. This, uh, this writer, Dave Flabot, um, I'd worked with him before on Dirt, and um, he's just a great writer. He had the script, and I read it, and it was the first time I'd read something. I went, I cried, I laughed. And while the script, you know, I learned a lesson. You have to really have everything so together the script has to be in perfect shape. I mean, I learned the lesson. You can't be like, oh, that'll, uh, that'll work. this will work out, or I'll make this happen. I was under a time crunch. I, I really wanted to direct something. I was just dying to, and I just wrapped Cougar Town, and only had a certain amount of time before I had to go back, and I, I had this window. Yeah. yeah. And um, I had taken the script around, and people liked it, but they thought it needed more development. They might have been right. Um, so I had a lot of nipples, but it wasn't 
a firm commitment. Financing-wise. Yeah, fi- uh-huh. sorry, financing-wise. So I just decided I believed in it, and I was I just said, I want to do it. And I got an amazing cast. I yeah, think every single really person. Did. That's something I love. Like, I just love that part, casting these actors that elevate it in so many ways. But, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's hard when you're not, it's not perfect on the page. Right. And the script was great, but I, I think I probably could have used more time, obviously. But, um, yeah, I decided to pay for it. I wanted to have it done. Well, I think that one of the hardest things about setting up a film is that is your cast going to be ready when your financing is going to be ready? And is your finance dependent on your cast? And oh. if you take someone around for a while and you don't get financing for a while, does that person drop off? I mean, it's the hardest thing in the world. That's the hardest part. You're right. It's, it's, if I didn't have the cast, then I wouldn't get the financing. The cast doesn't want to work without the financing. Right. So you just wanted one person to sign on. So if that one person could bring enough, then you could get the money. But it was just too hard. No one wants to commit their time with an unknown director. I'd, I'd done one. I did do a movie of the week, a, a TV movie for a Lifetime called Tall Hot Blonde. Right. But, you know, nobody, they didn't know when I'd put their time and effort into working for a film. For me, they didn't know anything about what I did and what I'd be like as a director. So that was a struggle. So I thought I would just pay for it myself and make the best movie I could make for the littlest amount of money. And plus, that film was really ambitious location-wise, you know. Yeah, I forgot how many. We had so many locations. We had so many characters. I, don't, I can't remember yeah. if it was like 19. I don't know. It was just a, a, it was a lot. And we also did it Union. So you did. If so we did the movie for a million six, it was like doing it for a dollar fifty. Right. I mean, by the time you pay all the unions, but you can't all do stuff, it non-union, right? I, I, no, I would have probably been shut down or something. That's. I think that's another thing that comes along with you know you work at a certain level. You have access to great actors, and they they signed on, and you're who you are, and and there's there's expectations. You mm-hmm. can't just sort of anonymously go make a film. Yeah, and there's a lot of people with very strong opinions about what you do. It's. I mean, people are pretty cutthroat. I mean, the reviewers, I, I, got some, I got some great reviews, and I got some that were so mean. Like, it's, you, you're under scrutiny for sure. You know, it's funny you say that. I, I read some reviews, and, uh, and that's true. There was a great L.A. Times review. There, there was some LA really Times. terrible There was reviews. one that said they, it, was in the tri, it got into the Tribeca Film Festival, and um, somebody who was there that was reviewing it said that they, the movie made them want to throw up. <laughs> Like, but it was like kept talking about it. Just made them literally sick. And I wanted to say, listen, then walk out before the end. You sure know every single. If you were to yeah. throw up, then well, it was just it was so. Well, mean. Uh, well, look, you obviously you open yourself up to criticism when you do something like that. But also, you get a different level of criticism when you are who you are. Yeah. But what I wanted to say is that I thought that first off, Sean William Scott plays your lead, and he was great and I think the film has a nice arc to it and at the beginning of the commentary you say this thing that I that just blew me away you said I showed the film to Gus Van Zandt and the first thing he talked about was music and how much the music is going to determine how the audience feels right away about the tone of the film and to me I wondered if that was sort of another layer of you know a learning experience of trying all this different music under under the film because I think the complexity of the film lies in the fact that it has your taste for really inappropriate funny moments but it also has a really big heart yeah the movie definitely pushes the envelope for comedy I mean you either think that stuff's funny or you find it really inappropriate so the people who wanted to throw up 
I think they were just probably like, whoa, it's so inappropriate. But I, I to me, if someone's not offended, I kind of don't think it's funny. I like I liked things that make you actually squirm. I mean, there are these people in life. The, the character Lucky, who plays uh, Sean William Scott's brother, is so inappropriate. It's, he's wrong in every way, but at least he has a heart and he learns something at the end. So right. I think that the tone of the movie, trying to find, l- letting you know it's okay to laugh at some of this really like, whoa, that's, that's yeah. awkward. And even to the point where at one point I was directing going, God, is this okay? Because I'm sitting here working with this amazing actress. Her name is Mackenzie Marsh. And some of the jokes, there were heavy jokes. There were, I, well, fat jokes, really. Right. But I asked her, was she comfortable or is she feeling offended has it gone too far what does she think and she said no this is what these these are real people and she felt completely fine with it so I had to check in with her because sometimes I thought oh maybe am I going too far but uh, you know you were talking earlier about you know the tone and talking to Gus Van Zandt he was so nice to me to watch the film I think that was one of the struggles is trying to figure out how to keep such an emotional movie which is also kind of outrageously funny in my opinion um, and how to balance those so you knew it was okay to laugh at something that was such a serious subject, obviously, as right. suicide. So in the opening scene, Sean William Scott is going underwater. And it was another really hard day to shoot. Sean does not like to be underwater. And he was practicing in, in my swimming pool, trying to do it. Like, I thought it was going to be okay, but that was a real struggle for him. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that that's I mean, like not a, a major part of the thing. And... <laughs> Yeah, it was tough. That was we were in a big tank out in the valley, and it was it was yeah. really hard. But anyway, so I had I'd wanted to play things like um, "Comfortably Numb" with Pink Floyd. Yeah, I thought that would be a beautiful song for him to be going down under. And um, I'd done all these Coldplay songs and all these things in the movie, and I showed it to Gus Van Zant, and he said, "I think the problem, the reason why the tone is not working, or it's you're having a problem for people to to relax into laughing." with such a serious suicide scene at the beginning is because you're not letting the audience know it's okay. And he said, you know, I played this, I played the movie and he just tried it at home. He played it with um, Pink Panther. Oh, right, right. And he just turned the sound down and put his song on and watched it. And then you just kind of, you knew it was okay. You knew this was going to be irreverent and going to, you could relax. And so that really helped. Isn't that interesting? We take so much of that for granted in filmmaking, but the idea that, you have at the beginning you have to establish that for people and then they can go oh i'm watching a comedy or mm-hmm. i'm watching a drama or yeah. it's the hardest thing to do right to get the tone just right so the audience knows what's mo- which movie they're in yeah you said also in the commentary that there was a day there's a the son of Sean William Scott's brother so the son of Garrett Delahunt's character uh, is gay and he comes out in the movie and you say that you know in the scene where he has to kiss his boyfriend that they were upset with you and it was hard for them. And, and, you know, you never think about that. As an audience, you go, obviously, these guys are they're actors and they're going for it. But it was interesting to hear that you had a struggle with other actors really committing to Not both to actors. It. Not both. No. <laughs> Just one. Evan Ross is the one who was like, you know, let's put it this way. I might have slowed the film down a little bit. <laughs> Just to make the kiss last yeah. a little longer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt for you in there, talking about on the commentary of, because I think that's one of the things that a director often has to be sort of on the day. You know, you have to sort of keep your cast invested in what you're doing, and they have to trust you, and they have to believe in your vision. And 
I just thought of that with you being an actor for so long and being on the other side of that conversation, what it was like to see. Well, you know what you do is you find out that you're defending something that you don't want to do because you're afraid. And you, and you find that out as an actor. and you Well, and, knowing that, I can yeah. see when someone's saying, I don't want to do it this way, as opposed to just going, yeah, why not try with Sean? I was wanting him to push something, to really, and he didn't think his character would be um, a certain way. I don't think he thought he would be that um, mean or something. I, I, I just remember feeling like, oh, it's fear that's stopping him because a lot of times actors don't want to do something because they're afraid. Right. I would, at least that may be for me. But it's nice to, for me to be an actor and be able to say to the other person, I understand, I will protect you, but let's take it that far. You can always do it a different way, but just to have, you have to have that kind of connection that they trust that it's okay. I would think the minute you start directing another actor, you would learn so much about acting. Mm -hmm. Like, because you see it yeah. from the other side. Yeah, I think you just have to be, I, I think it helped me because I know that I want to try something without being told what to do first. So I think that's, whatever I'd like for myself, I try to do with other people. That part of it's fascinating to me because I've directed quite a bit, but I've never acted. And so sometimes I'm, I'm searching for things that I think will help. For sure. I've been on the other end of going, mm, this doesn't feel right at all. But you still try, and then you could be wrong. You could, you could try it, and their right way might be better. It's, it's, it's good to pull people out of their comfort zone. Yeah. And I think that's what you know, good directors do. They give you a completely different way to look at it, a thing that you wouldn't just normally do. It wouldn't be your normal comeback. It wouldn't be what you would expect how to react to something. I love to be challenged in that way. Are you someone that, that sort of gives yourself a break right before you start a scene of, I don't have to remember everything? I, like, can you get in a place where it's more instinctual than it is studied? I better, because I have a terrible time memorizing lines, <laughs> as you saw. That is um, so funny. But once I get it, I get it. it but I do, I do have to play around a lot before it just really is right, in there. Right, right, right. But I don't, I don't, as long as I'm not holding anyone up and as long as I'm staying on course, I feel I, I like being freer with stuff. It's better for me not to be too, I mean, that's a, maybe a cop out, but it feels that way to me. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you think you may be depressed, or if you're feeling anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are trained to listen and to help. Now, with BetterHelp, you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, such as, you know, anxiety, depression, grief. They deal with relationships, sleep disorders, LGBT matters, self-esteem, family conflict, and more. They can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. So what you do is you fill out a questionnaire and it helps assess your specific needs and you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. And then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages. Everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. So join the million plus people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option for therapy, and our listeners get 10% off the first month with the discount code CAMERA. 
You can get started today at betterhelp.com slash camera. That's betterhelp.com slash camera. Now back to the show. It seems like you started friends and you put your head down for like 16 years and you look up and you're like, oh my God, it went by so fast. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. does it feel like that to you? Like to have this kind of breathing space? It, it feels like I need to get back to work. Really? Because I was on Friends for 10 years. I went essentially right after that. I did two years of dirt, two right. seasons. And then I, and that was developing it and all that stuff. And then I did six years of Cougar Town. And all of a sudden I did a pilot last year. It's the first time I've been on television and it did not get picked up. And I was like, oh, that's such a low blow. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, was talking, I was like, I can't, I mean, so far I've been doing such a great track record. Um, it's the first pilot I've ever done that didn't get picked up. But I would imagine... Even before Friends. I mean, even the pilots I did before Friends... They all got picked up. It was up. some, you know, six episodes, 13, something. It was never pilot, see you later, out. Well, it's time for you to have one of those then. Uh, so Everyone else one. has had to experience. But it feels like I have to remind my manager. I'm like, okay, we need to, like, we got to get back out and reinvent. And she said, okay, just know you were on television for 18 years straight. Yeah, a better, longer, more successful run than anybody in history. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But, I mean, I, I don't think about that, but I guess I don't need to like panic yet. But, but I think that's interesting because uh, I would imagine that sometimes success can, can be the thing that you have to serve because when things are going so well, of course you're going to keep at them. You know, I would imagine that this is an opportunity to actually take a breath and look and go, okay, what do I really want to do next? Who am I? How do I want to say it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to be very specific next time. I'm going to be careful. And, I mean, for sure with directing as well. I, I just want to be really... Um, I've learned so much, though, with the stuff that I have directed. I've learned so much that it's just... I can't wait to apply it. Right. Well, okay, so I, I have to ask you. Um, I read this New York article, New York Magazine article, uh, about the popularity of Friends. And I had no idea that this was going on among us. But the show went off the air 13 years ago now. And I read this article that 16 million people st still watch Friends every episode, every time it airs. Are you serious? Yeah, it's some crazy number that it would still be in the top of the Nielsen's now. It, the, just the reruns and the Netflix views and everything. And... And what they're saying is these 20-something people that are watching it, they refer to it as a show from another generation and about a simpler time in life. <laughs> have you ever... By the way, it was simpler. I know. But it really it, was. It doesn't hit home until you think about the idea that the iPhone came after Friends ended mm -hmm. and social media and Twitter and Instagram came after Friends ended. So it's true that anyone in their 20s watching Friends would look at this as a totally different time in our lives. Yeah. I mean, have you noticed that there's still this massive recognition of, of the show? I do notice that, that people still love it. Like Coco's age, my daughter's 13 or almost 13. They just, they love it. They absolutely love it. And, and when I watch it, I go, oh, wow, that still holds up. It's just, it's, it's hysterical. It's funny. The characters yeah. are great. I remember talking to Matthew Perry. I don't remember when this was, but he's like, I, or I read this, that something he had said about how we have these whole new group of fans that look at us and go, what happened? <laughs> I mean, like when they meet us in real life, they're like, what? Oh, my God. We're like 20 years older. Right. But it's still, right. Like, they, we're still in their living room every Netflix. single day now. Exactly, yeah. And it is a simpler time, of course. People are talking to each other. They're, you know, they're 
the problems, I think, are kind of the same, except for there's just not so much pressure. And um, the pressure was about being in your 30s and trying to start your life. Now the pressure is, you know, how many I Snapchats know. or how many hearts. Like, oh, it's just so much. It's so much. Yeah, it how makes many, me kind what, what are those things when you have to... Coco's always like, if I take her phone away from her, she's always mad at me because she's got to do her um, strings or what are they called? Her live streaks. stream? Streaks. Do I don't know what streaks are. Oh, you're going to learn about those. Oh, dear God. She's on like, she's got streaks that have been going for 130 days where you, I don't know what it is. You know, it is interesting to look at that phenomenon of, of kids sort of pining for that time and watching that version of it through your show and, and feeling like nostalgic for when they didn't have phones. Yeah. I, I feel sad for that generation. Because I don't look back and go, God, I, I wish that that time when people rode horses everywhere, I wish that was bad. I don't, I don't pine for that, you know? But I do feel like this generation also, like, there's an awareness that everyone's addicted to their phone. Yeah. So tell me, because, you know, I'm, we're similar age and, and, uh, I remember I was I was starting my career when Friends was starting, and then it turned into this phenomenon. And yet, I just like everybody else. I just watched it, and and in preparing for you to come in, I I did some reading about the history of it. And one thing I didn't know was that you were offered the part of Rachel, but you wanted the part of Monica. Yes, at the originally I was up for the part of Rachel, and for some reason I thought I related more to Monica, which maybe it's because I do. Yeah. I'm very similar to her. And they didn't know that at the time. They didn't know that. I'm right. not as clean as Monica, but I am neat. And I'm not as competitive, even though some people, my partner, Johnny McDay, would say I am yeah. competitive. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> um, anyway. So at the beginning, you saw that this person's like you, which reveals that those writers really knew the characters and the casting was spot on mm-hmm. with who those people turned out to be. Do you put a lot of stock into chemistry and the accident of, of that show? Absolutely. I mean, that was, a, that was lightning in a bottle, to have those writers, those creators of the show, and the, the team they put together, and the actors that just, it just worked. I mean, the casting was perfect. It really was. When did you notice that it was going to be different or special? I mean, did, was, there, was there a moment where you were like, oh, this is, this is something? I know during the pilot, I could tell it just worked. Right. People responded to it. It felt right. I mean, everybody was just, we got along. It's, it just was a great group of people that were put together that were there for the right reason. And, um, but it didn't really, it wasn't until like a year later, I think it came out over the summertime, the show, and that's when it really um, picked up. I, I, yeah, I think it's aired in September, and then by that next summer, I think it shot way up. People, right. for some reason, caught up over the summer, and that, that's when I was like, oh, this show really is, it's big. Well, I would think that so many things would happen, too, when it became that cultural phenomenon. I, I would think that it would even affect the studio audiences. Because I watched back, and one of the things that I noticed was that, you know, you don't realize, as a TV viewer, if you're not totally involved in that world, how much that is theater and not making films or making television. It's live theater, right? Yeah. Talk about how you sort of found your stride and learned about comedy through the experience of doing that in front of a live audience? Well, it's a good point. People will laugh if they know you're about to say something or if they see Chandler walk in, they know his, or Dross, when you know he's going to be depressed or, um, it's true that they, they 
start it before, and then you've you have to learn. I, I actually learned a lot from Michael J. Fox when I was on Family Ties. Oh, you did. I would watch him take one line, and within the pause, the pauses that he would take, he would get three huge laughs that somebody else might just run it together and get one at the end. So and were you a good study? Like, were you oh, like? Oh yeah, he was really. I was yeah. I mean, that whole. I thought everyone on that show was great, but Michael J. Fox is a master at at getting the most to me the most amount of laughs out of one line. And then, you know, I work with these other five actors that just yeah. were phenomenal. You know, on Friends, we didn't ever sweeten the laughter. It was always, I mean, we would sometimes have to cut it out because it would be so long. Yeah, and what do you do when you're on stage and and there's this big chunk of laughter? You try not to laugh? I don't know. In my head, I'd be like, how are they going to cut this? Like, what, should I stay yeah. still? Should you got to stay still and you act like you're still answering the questions you just answer, but you just keep right. nodding. I think we holding. need a laugh track in this show so yeah. we can see how that is. <laughs> Um, that, uh, I remember when I did this scene with Matthew where we were in London and we came out of the covers for the first time. Right. And that was like the big reveal that we were today at there. We got caught and, um, that was the longest laugh. We were just sitting there frozen forever. As you're starting that process of learning how to do this in front of a live audience and watching Michael J. Fox then getting this show, how much did you notice your own growth and getting better comic timing-wise? Like, that's something you can't teach, so I just wonder how you learn it. Experience. Yeah. I think. You just have to just, be up there yeah. and do it. How much is the audience telling you what's working and not? Oh, they tell you everything. Really? Yeah. I mean, sometimes they might laugh at something that may not be as funny. You can't believe it's that funny, but they love the characters so much that they just are with you. But mostly, they'll tell you, and th- that's one of the great things about Friends is we have these amazing writers that would just, you know, and the creators would come in and just change, get on the spot. We'd just change it all the time. Our tapings would go really long. Because, really? Yeah, because it wasn't just, okay, here's our script, we'll shoot it and go. If it wasn't working or if it, if, if it wasn't up to their standard or, they just were perfectionists in, right. a, in the best way. And did you have some sort of a, because I would think that would be pressure, knowing that you have to come out and put a whole show together in one night and there's a live audience there. Did you have sort of a pre-show routine? We did. I mean, it, it, wasn't, it was like a ritual where we would get in a huddle and kind of wish each other well and have a little... We had a huddle before the show each Friday night. So it really was theater. Oh, yeah. It was theater, for and, sure. And was there someone that you couldn't look at too much? Like, is there someone that just had your number when it came to breaking you? Yeah, I remember when Ross had the bagpipes. Right. Oh, my God. I mean, no, I actually was probably the one who could keep it straight for that the most just because I was watching everybody else just lose it. I mean, absolutely lose it. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of, the the gag reels were, were really fun. I bet. You know, I read this book uh, called Top of the Rock. I think Warren Littlefield wrote it. Oh, yeah. About the history of the way the show started and everything. And there, there was an anecdote in there that I thought was notable because um, it sort of predicted all of the change. It, it talked about Jimmy Burroughs taking you guys to Vegas. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that night. Well, I remember the picture of us all. And we were in this private plane. And Jimmy Burroughs took us away. Maybe Warner Brothers gave us this plane for the night or something. I don't know. We were very fortunate. And he said to us, this is the last time you're going to be able to go to Vegas and not be, you know, just being yourself. And without. because it was coming from him and not some studio executive, did it feel more real? 
It did. And I think the six of us were able to go to Vegas. If the six of, six of us were to walk into a casino right now all together, I would probably be shocked because yeah. I'd be so happy. Yeah. <laughs> it would be so hard but to arrange. people would lose their minds. But Yeah. I don't know if they would lose. Yeah, I hate that. That sounds conceited or something. No, but they, no I, they would. They, they would, would lose their minds. Yeah, they would it, think it was pretty special. And so yeah. would I. <laughs> and 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 this is 13 years after it ended. But if you can imagine, the middle of season five, mm-hmm. you guys can go have dinner together. You yeah. can't do anything like that. Do you remember at one point thinking, this has gotten completely out of control? Uh, no, I don't think I thought like that. I just thought I just felt so. I mean, I got into any restaurant I wanted to, which is great. Yeah. I um, I felt so fortunate. It was the greatest thing. There were all these opportunities opened up, and you know, we were so lucky. I was able to buy a house, and it just life. We it was it's just a perfect time. I think. I mean, not everything was perfect. My dad died. I remember having to do a scene, and I was on the way to work, and my dad called me up, and he just went to the doctor and said he had cancer, and they gave him three months to live. And I, it was a Friday, and I was on the 101 freeway just getting off from the 405 to the 101, and I thought I had to go to work and fake it. I had to be, like, happy and be Monica and go. And I went in, and I said to them, I don't, I don't know if I can make it. And, but the audience, this is, like, a huge deal. You can't just walk away. And my dad wasn't dying that day, and I, there's nothing I could have done. They were so great to me. They, they, we went through the show. I was in a terrible frame of mind. I didn't know, I couldn't remember my life. I don't know if, I don't remember what was happening in my head, but just wasn't there. And they put me on a plane right afterwards. Warner Brothers put me on a plane and flew me to see my dad on a Citation 10, which I got to see him within three hours. It was crazy. Oh my gosh. He lives in Panama, he lived in Panama City, Florida. So that would take, you know, 10 hours by the time you go through, change planes, wait, layovers. Anyway, um, I don't know what my point is, but just uh, I just felt fortunate there's so many things that that life was happening people were getting married people were having kids people I mean it, we went through 10 years together so that right. was such an intense time that's why I feel so we're so close even if we don't see each other the girls see each other all the time um, but matter of fact I'm actually seeing the girls tonight really um, yeah Lisa and Jen but um, it just you know that was a big chunk of our life and I think that our, it, everything changed, but we, I think we just, it was really fortunate. Things, I mean, yes, I think if someone didn't really still care, I think it would be weird to not have a paparazzi. I don't like it, believe me. And sometimes they scare me. I can't tell if it, it feels so scary to see this thing pointing at you from across the way, but I can spot them a mile away. I can just, in a second, I get taken off guard, but if they weren't there, I'd probably go, oh, no one cares anymore. So yeah. I just kind of looked at it at a different, you know, at least they're still taking my picture. Well, it's funny to hear you say that because you become that successful. You have that kind of show. On one hand, that's what the dream is, to really do amazing work and have people love it. That's the dream, right? But at the same time, I'm sure you had to make some adjustments that nobody else except those six of you had to make. I mean, back then it was invasive in some way. When I was pregnant with Coco, that was really hard because, you know, paparazzi loves a baby story. But... You know that's that, that's all annoying, but at the same time, it's this much of all the benefits and all the glory and the fun and the greatness that we were having, the time that we were having. Right. Well, I'll tell you the the one thing that the book reminded me of was I remember when the whole negotiation of the contracts went public, mm. and I was so impressed with the idea that all six of you would go in there and want to have the same contract, and, and I think that. 
you know, there's a story in that book. I think it was Dick Wolf that's quoted in that book, who's a big producer. He did Law and Order and he did all these things. And his response was, that was upsetting to me. I would have fired Matt LeBlanc and then there would have never been any discussion of everyone getting, yeah, everyone, everyone having solidarity again. And I think that. Was I he mean, joking? No, I don't think he was joking. I think he was saying like, that was the time when the actors Too much realized power. their power, right? Yeah. But tell me about tell me about how that came up because at the beginning of the show, everyone had sort of different contracts, right? Yeah, we all had different contracts. I I was lucky. I had the the Richie Cunningham Fonzie contract where no one could make more than me. Oh, I had you, the oh, favored nations thing. Yeah, so I didn't need to fight the battle because I had that. But it was so important that we got paid the same amount of money. We were all working. We're, this, it was, you know, the show used to be called Six of One. That's where it started. Right. We were Six of One. I mean, we were a team. I don't think that anyone would have done the show if one person had been. They, I think, actually, I feel like there was a thing where they could pick us up and only take four of us. Oh, really? Yeah, so there's all this. I mean, there, it could have been an ugly situation, which... Just, we all stood by each other, and that's it, it, it was everything. I think any other way, it would have been too many hard feelings, too uncomfortable. It would just been horrible. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, in the book, Lisa Kudrow says that she worked harder on the relationships with the five of you than than on her marriage because that's what was necessary. Because I would think that that you know, no one else could understand what you guys had or dealt with or were going through, mm -hmm. right? And then what happened when you guys were successful at having that? Like, did that bring you guys closer together? Well, we ate lunch together every single day. That's you did? Sure. Yeah, during those times. Um, yeah, I think it did. It, it, it was challenging. There were some people that, you know, not everybody was in the exact same place all the time as far as their comfort level of how long to sign for or, you know, did they want to do it? You know, it, some people felt better to sign on for three years. Some right. people felt better, like had commitment problems, and one year sounded more palatable. But we had to compromise, and everybody had to do it. So it, it was definitely, it's a, it's a, what Lisa said was a good point. We really worked on those relationships, and, tr and no matter what, it was important that we stayed, even with any internal conflicts, really close and hurt each other. It was a good lesson in and communication. Yeah, one of the most amazing things when you think about the time then versus now, when you see a lot of a lot of conversation about women not being paid as much as men for the same job in the film industry. Mm -hmm. You guys were probably one of the first examples where the women and the men were all paid equal, right? Yeah, right. Obviously, that's a general statement, but it's pretty amazing that that even even then that that was the case, right? That's true. I, I don't. I think, um, yeah, women don't always get paid the same as men. But in this case, we were. There was no, there was nothing to do with men or women. It yeah. didn't matter the popularity of the character or not, because that also was ever changing, depending on where the storyline was, and it was just we were equals. When you walked away from that show, did you feel like you understood whatever you needed to do going forward, you know, in television? Not everything, but I did understand comedy, obviously, more than I could have. I mean, that was the best learning experience ever. Right. And you also learn about, you know, movement, how things work better when, they're, when you're moving. It's not just to sit 
not not an interview show, of course. Um, but, Should we you know, walk and, around the chairs while we talk? But I think it, movement helps comedy. Right. But to get six of you moving in a room, it's like, oh, yeah. it's a Jimmy dance. Jimmy Burroughs was amazing at that. Just like, you you walk over here now. That, that, like, it was just a, a, and then you just get comfortable and props, and it just about... Was there any pressure that if you do this too many times, the audience is going to stop laughing at the jokes and you're going to lose the energy of the room? Like, was, was there a sense that you kind of had to get it quick? Maybe at the very beginning, but they were with us. They they really stuck it out. They did. That audience. Oh, yeah. So what, really give me an example of a long night. Oh, how, how many a hours? typical night would have been, we started the show around 5, I think, maybe 7, but I think 5, maybe 3 in the morning. And the audience done. would stay there the whole time. The, yeah, you wouldn't sometimes switch, we'd out, switch the out Sometimes we'd switch oh, out the audience. But... Uh, you know, and then sometimes someone will come out. We had an MC or a you know someone like a stand-up comic. Stand, yeah, yeah. But we would come out and do stuff. Like I remember one time I was sitting out backstage. I was in the fat suit, and yeah. um, I came out to say hi to the audience or something. And I was pretending to eat a donut. <laughs> and then they turned on music, and I started doing some ridiculous dance. But you know, Matthew Perry would go out, or you know, all of them. David Schwimmer, Matt LeBlanc, they, everyone would go do it little bits or say hi or. I mean, we try to keep them interested. That's so fascinating. And we try to move as fast as possible, but not with the, not when we were filming, but just in between. Yeah, I mean, to have that on top of your job as acting and learning lines, like, yeah. it's pretty amazing. It probably took a lot of energy. Oh, it did. Friends in their 60s might be a little different. Friends in their 60s would be different, but just started like 10 a.m. Really hard, um, <laughs> but other than that, it was, it was just the easiest, most fun job. Well, it's it's fun to go back and watch it after, you know, because it's just fun to, like, dive in at yeah. any point, and it works. It's amazing. Well, okay, so for those same people that are now watching Friends, I think they couldn't have understood how ubiquitous MTV was when we were in high school and in college in that era. And if you were between age 10 and age 30 in 1984, you saw the Bruce Springsteen video probably... 50 times, right. right? Tell me about that, because that was really, that was sort of the beginning for you, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd done two days on a soap opera and um, a New York telephone ad, and that was it. That was I'd it. I did something a little bit of modeling, and I went on the commercial audition. It was, it was, to me, like a commercial audition, but it was for a Bruce Springsteen video for Dancing in the Dark. And um, I went in, and Brian De Palma was directing it. How amazing is that? I know. Your first time being directed was by Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma, yeah. And I walked into this big casting room, and all these dancers were there with their legs right up in the air. They're stretching. They're doing, yeah, stretching splits. And I was like, I don't think I'm in the right place because I can barely touch my nose, maybe (laughs) a little. So I, I just remember going in and having a conversation with Brian De Palma, and I was really nervous. And he just, he just talked to me, and then he said, "Will you dance?" I was like, oh, awkward, okay, really? I'm not really a dancer, but all right. And I just started moving a little bit. And then I got the job. That's amazing. Because I was so nervous and embarrassed. So when we went to, it was shot in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. And actually the story was going to be, it was a bigger story than just what you saw in the video. Oh, really? Yeah, they filmed this. It was me and two other girls. We were buying t-shirts and we were putting on makeup in the bathroom. It was like a whole little thing about, oh my God, I'm so excited to see this concert. I can't wait. I can't wait. And we get there and then one of us gets picked out of the audience. But so they filmed all this stuff. But they didn't show that. They just showed, you know, right. that part. But I remember going there and they and I, I remember... Um, I think someone said, okay, so Bruce is going to pick one of you out of the audience. And I was like, no, 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 no,
<laughs> really? Yeah, I did not want to be the one to go. I didn't want to dance in front of 30,000 people. So it was a full concert. It was a full concert, yeah. And we did the song twice, back to back. I remember someone saying, what do you do when you like something that much? Bruce said, and they said, do it again. He goes, good, because we have to. (laughs) No way. So you didn't want to get I didn't want to be the one. But then then they told me that was. Think if Brian DeBalma had listened to you. Said, all right, we'll take the other girl. Yeah, think about that. (laughs) Because that was really important (laughs) for the reason that I spent... (laughs) Um, I spent a lot of time talking about what Bruce Springsteen was really like after that video. It got me in the door to so many places. Oh, I bet. Everyone just wants to know about Bruce Springsteen. I know. Literally, I felt like my career was, what is Bruce Springsteen really like for the the beginning? Then it was, what is Michael J. Fox really like? And then it's, what is Jennifer Aniston really like? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. We all want to know what Courtney Cox is really like. Oh, no. I tell everybody everything, so I'm not even some big mystery. No, but that's interesting because up till that point, you're probably not sure what you're going to do with your life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, did you, before that, were you like, I'm going to be an actor and that's just what's happening? Or I think that at that point I was studying acting. I was going to speech classes to get rid of my southern accent because I'm from Alabama. Oh, really? I was um, doing a little bit of modeling. And doing a lot of book covers where you just go in and someone would illustrate you, but you'd take pictures, you'd be photographed. Oh, right, like so uh, to, Anne like, of Green Gables. Yeah, like Secret of the Dark. Or, you know. <laughs> but I, I loved it because it was, it was a good way to try to afford to live in New York City, which was not easy. But did you have a big plan? Like I didn't have a big plan, no. I, d- I was going to college. I wanted to be an architect, but obviously not enough to where when I, 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 what I did was I went to, to New York for the summer after I graduated. I did some modeling jobs. Then I went to college in Washington, D.C., and then at the end of that year, I went back to New York, and that's when I got, um, I don't think the Bruce Springsteen video, but that's when I got, like, the New York Telephone ad and a few other jobs, and I was right. supposed to go back to college, and I just thought, this, I can always go to college. I kind of wish I had, but, but I just thought I'd, I'll take this ride, and then I got the Bruce Springsteen video and some other things, and I mean, I was lucky. I, I had to, like, learn my craft after a door was open. So a lot of times it's just like, oh, shit, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> did you ever feel like because of the way you started and because it happened so fast, did you ever have that feeling of they're going to find out I don't belong here? I know that when I did Saturday Night Live on um, the first year of Friends, I was, it was way too soon for me. Oh, wow. I was just learning what I was doing, and I, I look at it and go, oh, my God. And I was with the best cast, and like all the, these great guys. Yeah. And I just was too green. I was too nervous. I was panicked. You couldn't enjoy it. I could do it. it now. I'd have a ball because I could make a fool of myself, and I wouldn't, I could, I just, I, I've, I've, you know, everything is easier now with my comfort you know, just being me and being, you know, but I, it, it took a long time to, I, I just, I, I had opportunities that were probably before my time. Like you felt like you were always catching up. Yeah. And well, now I, I'm not. What a great way to live, right? To find out that you can jump first and then figure out where you're going to land. It certainly makes it exciting. Yeah. Okay. So I have to ask you before we finish up, you have a daughter, you've put her in, I think I've seen her in two of your music videos. She was in Just Before I Go. Mm-hmm. So obviously she likes performing. She likes singing. She sang in Just Before I Go. Correct? Yeah, she yeah. sang um, uh, an Elvis Presley Love Me song, Tender. Right? Yes, and right. my, uh, my partner Johnny uh, recorded her doing that. Right, it Johnny, is, who, who is in Snow Patrol and who's in done... Snow Patrol, who did so much music for my movie, if you right. ever see Just Before I Go. There's a lot of your own life in that film, and I just wonder, being a mom going through this business and starting at a different time when, when women were seen differently. 
and now the landscape has changed a lot. It still needs to change a lot more. But I wonder how you impart that stuff to your daughter and, and what you what you want to show her. Do you think about that with her? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to... Because they have so much access to so many things that... I mean, it's just hard to keep them in their age. They're, I mean, they, right. you know, they want to dress the way they see on YouTube or in videos. They want to dance the way they watch Beyonce dance. Or um, it, it's it's really hard just to keep them young. Or, yeah. But I just, you know, I just try to instill Coco. It's not about the way you look. It's about who you are, and just to try to. It's 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 definitely hard for it sure. Is. I think she likes that. I work. She loves to come to the set. She puts on the earphones. I mean, she's got a strong opinion, and I think she likes when people are, you know, when people have something that they're proud of or something that they're, they're passionate about. And um, I know she wants me to go to work right now. She's pretty sick of me being home. She's like, oh, my God, get a job. You're too hands-on. <laughs> she's seeing what all of the, the focus happens when, uh, it, yeah. when you don't I mean, have three it's projects all about Coco to do. Right now. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, listen, it's been, it's been fascinating to talk to you about this because I, I feel like as much as I've known you, no one can really know sort of what it's felt like to go through the path that you have. And so thanks for sharing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Hey folks, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. You know, working with someone over the years, you think you know them, but as I always rediscover on this show, when I sit down and really have a focused conversation about what it's like to be an artist, I always learn more about them, and I always end up surprised and creatively reinvigorated. Now, if you want to find yourself creatively reinvigorated, maybe you should go to offcamera.com where you can dive deep into our archive of fascinating conversations with actors, directors, musicians, athletes, and artists of all kinds. And check us out on social media. You can find us at Off Camera Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me, I'm Sam Jones at Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Or you can send me an email. I'm Sam at offcamera.com. Drop me a line. Tell me what you think of the show. See you next time, off camera.